Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia Psychiatry, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we're going to be talking about something which is, in addition to COVID, probably the top priority of all the newsmakers' eyelines and headlines, which is the presidential election, which is imminent. Specifically, we're going to be discussing an aspect of it which has become more hotly debated in the context of the current presidential campaign, which is what is the policy and the role of medical professionals and particularly psychiatrists in terms of using their medical expertise to opine on the qualifications of the candidates. And this particular issue became really highlighted in a very controversial way and then codified in the form of a rule or a policy that was eponymous with the candidate that was the sort of victim or target of the initial criticism at the time, which was Senator Barry Goldwater and the eponymous policy that was developed by the American Psychiatric Association in the aftermath to guide its members and psychiatrists in the profession was called the Goldwater Rule. And to discuss this, we have none other than former congressman and the son of Senator Goldwater, Barry Goldwater Jr. Barry, and thank you for allowing us to refer to you in the informal way. You know, having seen what's happened over the course of your life in terms of the rough and tumble of American politics, the way uh, negative advertising campaigning has evolved, and the fact that your father, after having been public servants for so many years, was uh, branded in the way that he was during his presidential campaign, and now seeing how it's occurring in this context, can you just share with us your reflections on what the experience was like way back when and your, your thoughts in retrospect? It's not a tea party. Politics is, it always has been rough and tumble. Sometimes uh, nice and sometimes it's terrible. And I admire anybody who volunteers to become a politician and run for public office. There was a Dear Abby article that the gentleman said, I want to know all about my history and my background and my family. I don't have enough money to spend. How do I do this? And the answer was, well, if you want to find out about your family, sign up as a Republican and run for public office. Well, you can find out more about yourself if you run for politics that you'll ever believe uh, that you ever knew about yourself. It's not an easy game. However, we're a democracy and a republic on top of that. So we have a government that governs instead of the king. And this republic has uh, been very successful because people have been free and free to express themselves under the First Amendment. When uh, my father ran in 1964 against Lyndon Johnson, that was kind of the beginning of what you might call dirty campaigning. Johnson had uh, spies on his train. Johnson ran a daisy commercial, which is still referred to in academia as a classic dirty campaign thing. And, and excuse me for interrupting, but uh, that commercial, which is iconic in the advertising world of a little child picking the petals of a daisy and then it culminating in the explosion of an atom bomb, that was developed by an advertising executive named Tony Schwartz. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but uh, you take my hat off to him. It was brilliant and right. very effective. It only ran one time, but it's still looked at today. 
And then this magazine fact by uh, Ginsburg came out, I think, between 64 and, and 65. In fact, asked a bunch of psychiatrists if Goldwater was fit for public office. A bunch of them responded and said, and said all kinds of things. So like I, I wrote a bunch of them down. Goldwater is suffering a chronic psychosis of paranoid schizophrenic who decompensates from time to time. Pathological makeup is Hitler, Castro, Stalin. These were all responses to this question that Ginsburg put out. Well, you know something, Barry Goldwater was, was admired and respected within the United States Senate and in Congress. And he had friends on both sides of the aisle, Hubert Humphrey, John F. Kennedy, they were all friends of his. Our family came from Poland and settled in California about 1850 as Jewish peddlers. And they rode their wagon all the way to Arizona about 1850 and settled in Prescott. One of the sons became mayor of Prescott for 28 years and mentored my father. Born in the territory of Arizona in 1909, he worked in his family. That wagon grew into a small department store. And uh, my father worked in that business until he went to war and served four years as a pilot uh, he came home, became a city councilman, and then ran and became a United States senator. He raised a family of four, of which I'm the second oldest, successfully. He was married for 50 years. He was involved in his community. He was a very generous man, kind man, and well-respected. I happened to get into politics in California, became a congressman, and served with my father in the United States Congress, father and son. One of the few times that has ever happened. A man of that background could not fly jet airplanes or run for public office if he was mentally imbalanced. But nevertheless, Mr. Gensberg used that in labeling my father unfairly. And as such, my father took him to court and won in the federal courts and got compensated by $1, $75,000 for compensation. What do you call it? Uh, Compensatory damages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the background. And every four years, we enter into this big political arena electing our president. And, you know, you can only step back and say, hey, we may not like the smell or the look of this thing, but by God, democracy is working. Some years, some every four years, it's nice. Some years, it's down and dirty. And uh, this year is, is no exception. And both parties are labeling the other presidential candidate as being mentally unbalanced. The Republicans talk about Biden not being all together there. And they, of course, the Democrats like to try to pin something on Donald Trump. So I guess it's fair game, but I don't think it's fair for a psychiatric field without examining the patient to render an opinion. I recently went to a cardiologist and I asked him, how, how was I? And he says, well, let's take some blood. Took some blood and said, I've got high cholesterol. I said, I mean, you couldn't look at me and tell me that? He said, no, we have to examine you. I mean, a, a psychiatrist is no different than a medical doctor who renders diabetes or cancer or other things. You have to learn about that patient. You have to learn about who he is. You have to take a hard look at his medical history. And then you can form an opinion. I can imagine the temptation. Well, the difference is that in politics, negative campaigning, name-calling, accusing your opponent of all kinds of things has been a standard practice. Maybe it's been ratcheted up in the context of you know, attack politics in the campaign that your father was in, but then later with uh, Lee Atwater 
and George H.W. Uh, Bush went against Michael Dukakis when he had the Willie Horton ad. When you invoke, and, and this is where I think my profession fell down on the job, when you invoke medical professionals to be complicit in this, that's when things cross a line that needs to be addressed and some type of policy or limits need to be established. Unfortunately, your father had to be the example of why such policies and limits were needed. And it was scurrilous that Ginsburg, who was the editor of the magazine that published it, could line up a group of psychiatrists who, because of their political orientation, were willing to use psychiatric diagnoses to brand the political opponent that they were not supporting. That's a violation of what I think the profession was subsequently determined as their you know, ethical principles. It's being revisited today with the current campaign, which we'll get into uh, shortly, but it's really deja vu all over again. So let me now, Barry, if you wouldn't mind, uh, turning to our other participant in the discussion, Dr. Paul Applebaum. So Dr. Applebaum is the Elizabeth Dollard Professor of Law, Medicine, and Ethics uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University, and was involved and continues to be somebody who advises the American Psychiatric Association. So Paul, thank you for being with us. And um, maybe you could sort of jump in in terms of how the Goldwater Rule came about as a result of what's happened to uh, Barry's father and has been evolving subsequently. So it took seven years after the episode that Barry described for the American Psychiatric Association to come up with a formal response. Although shortly after the Fact Magazine issue appeared, the medical director of the association issued a statement disavowing the psychiatric profession's involvement and pointing out that without having examined a person, psychiatrists really can't comment on their mental health. But seven years later, the association formally adopted, in addition to its ethical rules, the so-called annotations to the principles of medical ethics, which forever after has been known as the Goldwater Rule. And maybe it would be helpful if I just read the rules so our listeners know precisely what we're talking about. On occasion, psychiatrists are asked for an opinion about an individual who is in the light of public attention or who has disclosed information about him or herself through the public media. In such circumstances, a psychiatrist may share with the public his or her expertise about psychiatric issues in general. However, it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement. The motives behind adopting this rule have been the subject of some contention, but it seems clear that multiple factors were at issue. The profession was enormously embarrassed by this episode and in part preventing psychiatrists from offering diagnoses of prominent figures whom they had not interacted with or diagnosed formally in an examination was intended to prevent that embarrassment from recurring. And one can understand that. It's not unreasonable for any person on the street to ask if a psychiatrist can say that about somebody they've never met 
when it's clearly simply a way of expressing their political views in other language, then why should I go to a psychiatrist and trust that person to diagnose and treat me? But that suggests that there, there are other factors involved here as well, and I just want to point to two of them. One is that to the extent that the public is dissuaded from seeking psychiatric attention when they need it, that's a harm to people who may benefit from psychiatric care, and there are already enough obstacles in the way to accessing that care that additional ones are not needed. And secondly, it is, and it'd be interesting to hear Barry speak about this, it is the case that psychiatrist pronouncements about people are not neutral in their impact. It can be extremely disconcerting to have hundreds of psychiatrists, which is what happened in this case, describe you as mentally ill and apply a variety of diagnoses to you. And I know that the senator testified in the course of giving depositions in the subsequent legal proceedings about what the impact had been on him. And maybe we can hear from Barry later with regard to how it did impact his family to be in the middle of that and what he recalls about his father's reaction to it. But that's the history of, of how this rule came about. So Barry, I'm sure this is uh, just a small consolation, but uh, at least your father's travails in being the target of this you know, scurrilous abuse of a professional credential for partisan political purposes, at least it led to the establishment of a policy which really prescribes such behavior in the future even if uh, it's not fully adhered to by all of uh, the people that are psychiatrists. But it has served a useful purpose, as Paul has just described. As Paul has invited you, uh, why don't you just comment on, on what uh, Paul's had to share? I think a psychiatrist is looked upon with respect. The profession is important. It comes with a great deal of work and study to eventually be called a doctor of psychiatry. So there is credibility. And when a psychiatrist reaches out without diagnosis and labels somebody as crazy, that carries a lot more weight than a medical doctor who says that, oh, he suffers from diabetes. So there is a difference in the medical profession of which psychiatry is part of. Psychiatry, for some reason, the brain being the centerpiece of humanity in fact, our bodies are nothing more than transporters that carry around the brain. And without that brain, the rest of us wouldn't function. So consequently, the field of psychiatry carries great weight. And with that, you have both pointed out responsibility. When you label somebody mentally, in the case of my father, it left scars. In politics, you've got to learn to tough it out because you're called all kinds of names and, and you're attacked. But in politics, you've got to have tough skin. And I don't think, my father, there's nobody tougher than him. I mean, he went through the Second World War. He raised a family. His family struggled in the early days of territory of Arizona. We're from the West and we're tough people out here. We take care of our own. We're not looking for anybody to help us and take care of us. But in politics, you've got to be able to take it. That fact magazine and the accusation hit below the belt as far as my father. It, it affected him, and it resulted in that lawsuit. 
otherwise, I think you would have let it go. But to be labeled as mentally imbalanced or not well is a label that is hard to shake off. And it, it left its scars, not only on my father and my mother, but on all of us, the kids. You know, we survived. It wasn't just losing the presidential election. It was losing it with also having this kind of tainted by accusation, however inaccurate it was. You know, now, Barry, politics, there's winners or losers, and you got to be able to do both. But to have that stigma on you was a little bit more than I think called for in decent politics. And it's why so many people who are highly capable and might be interested in public service and running for office stay away from it because they don't want to subject themselves to this. But the justification that is given by members of our field who do not adhere to the Goldwater Rule or criticize the Goldwater Rule is that it's their patriotic duty to speak out when they see somebody campaigning for office or in office that are not fit because of their mental status. And even though they haven't been given the data or the opportunity to examine somebody, they feel that whatever uncertainty there is in their conjecture is overridden by the public service imperative. So Paul, maybe you can react to how the association sort of views that and disputes that claim. And Barry, I'm sure that you would find that to be, you know, an insufficient justification for indulging in such behavior. But Paul, why don't you go first? Since the 68 election, pretty much every four years, psychiatrists, psychologists, other mental health professionals have written books, written articles, appeared on TV to diagnose one or the other of the presidential candidates as mentally disturbed, suffering from a mental disorder, and therefore dangerous to be in a presidential role. Interestingly, the diagnoses that they offer are always congruent with their pre-existing political views. So liberals tend to think conservatives are crazy and conservatives tend to think liberals are crazy. That observation I think is very important here because when you look at the application of what on its face might seem like a reasonable principle, which is as the advocates of abolition of the Goldwater Rule often say, every other citizen can speak out and say whatever they want about a candidate, why can't we? When you look at how that works in practice, it turns out that people's supposedly professional judgments are actually being highly distorted by their pre-existing political views. Moreover, as Barry pointed out with his father's story, more often than not, in fact, almost always, they're wrong. The people who they think are bipolar, schizophrenic, character disordered, or the like, are not. I think to rest on the argument that people should have a right to say whatever they want about a candidate in the context of a profession, in the context of a profession with obligations, with ethical obligations to the public, in which such action may discourage people from seeking psychiatric or other mental health care is irresponsible. And hence, the association has resisted efforts to modify the rule to a significant extent to allow such behavior to take place. If there's one other thing I can add, it's that psychiatrists turn out not to be unique in this regard in terms of the suborning of medicine by politics. 
So we can think of the last several years in which the president's physician issued a letter saying in glowing terms how good the president's health was, which turned out later to have been dictated by the president and not reflect a medical judgment at all. Just last week on cable news television, an internist remotely assessed the president's physical health in the wake of his bout with COVID-19 and declared him healthy. And of course, going back in American history, there's a long line of presidents who had medical issues that were covered up, often just overtly lied about by their physicians for political ends. So it's a sorry history that the Goldwater Rule is designed to protect us against. Well, if I could jump in, Paul, you bring up some good points. <laughs> we certainly have had presidents and candidates who have had physical disabilities that were covered up. JFK was a classic example. My father was a really healthy guy. The only thing he had, he produced too much calcium in his bones. He had this almost the same problem that JFK had. And I remember my father would go up to the White House. He and John F. Kennedy were good friends. And they were both laid down on the carpet in the Oval Office. And <laughs> Janet Travell was their doctor. And she would inject in their back cortisone. Then they would get up and drink whiskey and visit. And then he'd go on home. But periodically, he would go up there because they both had the same problem. But other than that, my father, physically and mentally, was, was pretty stable. The problem, I think, in psychiatrists who feel a civic duty to render an opinion. I think, Paul, your observation is correct. They are politically motivated and in most cases opposing who they're labeling. But I think that a psychiatrist also has a civic duty to adhere to his Hippocratic oath, the standards and the ethics of their profession. And if they don't, I can only think that mentally they are insecure and they need to mouth off to make themselves look good in the profession. That's my observation, because why else would they violate their training, their profession? Let me move on to what I think is the reason why psychiatrists or any medical professionals that want to use their license and credential and expertise to lend itself for some political purpose, why they're given license to do that. And it's because the process by which political candidates are fielded and the mechanisms which can constrain behavior that may be provocative or questionable are either insufficient or they're not utilized. And what I mean by that is this. So when somebody runs for office, they're Health is not necessarily something which has to be disclosed. You know, people may make their tax returns available, but their medical uh, records, apart from their doctor's letters, are not required. And, you know, you can say it's an invasion of privacy, but on the other hand, the public has an interest in the health of the candidate. We've had historically instances where Paul Songus developed cancer while he was running, and that affected his candidacy. Thomas Eagleton had to be withdrawn from the ticket government campaign. So it's a, definitely of interest. Eagleton was, a, they somehow got in and got his records illegally. Right. That's right. Yeah. And he had been treated with ECT, which at the time was, you know, thought to be, you know, next to like psychosurgery in terms of its invasiveness. But the point is, is that obviously these had consequences 
but there was no systematic process by which they should be made known. Then when individuals are in office, including in the most you know, highest position, which is the presidency, they had to establish a 25th Amendment to address instances where the commander-in-chief might be incapacitated. And that has been used for purposes of when president may undergo some procedure like a colonoscopy or something that had anesthesia or what needed to be used when President Reagan had been subject to the assassination attempt. But the fourth clause of that amendment, that is the vice president and the cabinet determining that the president was mentally unfit and therefore was going to suspend their powers pending an evaluation, that's never been invoked. Yet it's a constitutional mechanism. Moreover, each president undergoes an annual checkup where they've been uh, go out to Bethesda Naval or Walter Reed and they get checked, but it's a checkup from the neck down, not the neck up. And it's not used as a kind of process or a mechanism in place to evaluate the ongoing status of what's a very stressful term of office. And we have instances where President Eisenhower had a heart attack. We have instances where FDR prior to his death was certainly in ill health. We have precedents where Woodrow Wilson had a stroke and his doctor and his wife kept it from the public. So the point is, is that my wayward colleagues who may opine inappropriately under the pretense of civic responsibility are given license to do so because the government's failing to do its job in invoking these mechanisms. That's their opinion. And under the law, the law gives certain people that prerogative to make that determination. Not the public, but the vice president and whoever else. Let me just say this. The field of health delivery and medicine comes with very high standards. And it's high standards because you go through a torturous educational process to get to where you are. It's not four years, it's your whole life is dedicated to learning and publishing and working and delivering good health. It has a respect of the public. We trust you more than we do other professions. I don't think that that gives you a platform to express political opinions or to be involved in politics. That is reserved for the press. The opinion page of my newspaper, The Signal, was run by a family by the name of Newhall. And Mr. Newhall, every week, would write an opinion about me. He called me every name that you can imagine about how bad I was. And I had to put up with that the whole 14 years that I was in Congress. Eventually, after I got out of Congress, I went out and had lunch with him and we had a good laugh. But that is where the opinion should be rendered in our press and not in the field of medicine, especially without evaluation. Well, I completely agree. And I guess the point that I was trying to make was that the public, and in this case, you know, physicians who were part of the public, feel impelled or more encouraged to jump in where they shouldn't because of the fact that normal mechanisms are not utilized when maybe they should be. For example, you know, you mentioned the vice president and the cabinet for the 25th Amendment. Politically, that'll never happen. I mean, they should be, 
In Reagan's case, when Reagan was recovering from the assassination attempt, there's a, a description that's in, it's in the biography of Reagan, said that he was seen to be drifting uh, in his comments, he wasn't paying attention, he wasn't following the train of the discussion, he was falling asleep, and they really contemplated whether they were going to have to invoke the 25th Amendment's fourth clause, and they decided to convene a full cabinet meeting and see how he did, and then decide afterwards, but the Gipper rallied to the audience and came through very effectively, so they didn't. You know, in this climate, you can never see it because of they're the same political power and they're all cowed by the presidency. So that's what I mean by the mechanisms not working. The normal constitutional mechanisms of separation of powers and the constitutional ones in terms of this case for remedies for a president who may be questionably competent are not being invoked. But Paul, what do you say? Well, you know, there have been suggestions for the establishment of an independent panel of physicians who would examine and evaluate both presidential candidates and presidents on an ongoing basis and make the findings publicly known. And the idea has been that that would give an independent voice that could inform the public about any medical problems that the president or, or presidential candidates faced. The proposal has been suggested many times and never gotten much traction. There are obviously medical privacy issues at stake, but I think both parties are concerned that when their person is in the White House, he or she may be subject to that kind of evaluation, which would produce politically uncomfortable information and they don't want to go there. So although I think you're right that it would be extremely useful to the public to have that knowledge, there seems to be a systemic block in the way of moving in that direction. Well, I would think it's obvious why that's not going to ever happen. We're involved in politics, okay? The question of who controls, who makes the laws, who makes the rules. We have election every two years. We elect a third of the Senate. We elect the entire House of Representatives. And every four years, a new president. That's a republic, a representative system that represents the people. The president of the United States is not a king. He doesn't sit there all by himself. He is surrounded by intelligent, capable individuals. This is his cabinet. He's got his vice president. He's got his assistants. He is looked at through a microscope by internally. And yes, internally, they may not want to divulge certain medical conditions, but that's their prerogative to do so. Every four years, we have an opportunity to pass judgment. And to get an outside counsel is only asking for a devious behavior. How's that? It's just like reapportionment. We just went through picking people here in Arizona to serve on the reapportionment committee. It just so happens there's one more Republican than there is a Democrat. Well, you're never going to hear the end of that. So then when we sit there and try to divide up the state, there's all kinds of shenanigans that goes on and a lot of lobbying and a lot of money comes into play. You're playing politics with the people's vote. When they elected the president, the Congress, they represent the people. So you think that an impartial group of physicians could not be selected to render an opinion that it would somehow be tainted by politics? There's no such thing as impartial. Everybody has an opinion. Even the current <laughs> Supreme Court nominee has an opinion. 
Well, there is certainly that risk, but with regard to medical status, a person's medical status, there are also objective indicators that could be used to determine how well they're functioning physiologically. And there are also objective indicators to determine aspects of mental function short of the kind of subjective from a distance tests that are being applied these days and have been applied every four years for too many years now. So the question would not just be what any panel's opinion was, but what was the evidence on which that opinion was based? And of course that could be contested once it was in the public president would have to subject himself to your analysis. He'd have to go on your couch and lay down there and subject himself to a thorough psychiatric examination. And you think any president's going to do that? I don't think so. Well, it's not just psychiatry. I mean, I think what Paul's saying is that there would be a panel of physicians that evaluated the person's health on a regular basis overall, including their neuropsychiatric status. I don't know. I think this is going to be an issue that's going to be discussed for some time, but I would only suggest that internally that president is scrutinized very closely and it will become apparent that he is mentally incapable of continuing. Most presidents see the public every day. We can tell our current president, <laughs> I mean, we don't, we don't want to get into it, but I mean, he's open. He opens himself up. And I don't like all the stuff that he does, the way his personality or whatever. But I like what he's done so far, so that's why I support him. And on the other hand, Biden, people are questioning some of his little flubs, and they're projecting it. But that's all part of the political process that goes on today. And the problem with having somebody who is so prestigious and is held in such high esteem as a psychiatrist rendering an opinion without thorough examination, that cuts below the line of good ethics and it should not be allowed. You know, it may be worthwhile mentioning, Jeff, that there's a very good new book that has been published on the whole episode that we've been discussing with Senator Goldwater and the subsequent history of the Goldwater rule. It's called Diagnosing from a Distance by John Martinjoy, who's a psychiatrist in Boston, and is really well worth reading for a look at the in-depth history of this whole event. Yeah, I, I, thanks for pointing that out, Paul. I, I spoke with Dr. Martin Joy in the course of writing it, and uh, it was a very serious effort, although I don't think it's necessarily going to resolve the controversy. <laughs> no. I want to thank you for your participation in what's been really a fascinating discussion. It's something that we need to continue to bear in mind, which is uh, even though it's an unpleasant uh, event, it's you know critical that we be aware of our history because it really helps to inform how we manage and deal with and understand sort of current events instead of being repeating them without sort of learning from the past. So former Congressman, Mr. Barry Goldwater, thank you for your participation. And Paul, thank you for adding the legal and medical expertise to this fascinating discussion. I want to thank the audience for their attendance. Hope you found this interesting today and say that this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia University. And this was Shrink Speak. Mm -hmm.